inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio. We're exploring a series on space colonization. And today, my guest is Dr. Oren Milstein. He's the CEO and co-founder of STEMRAD, and he's working with radiation. When dealing with deep space, radiation is one of the most important challenges facing astronauts and colonization of not only the moon, but also Mars. Dr. Milstein, welcome to the program. Thank you, James. It's really great to be here. So your research is fascinating. I think the best way for us to start our discussion today is to talk about radiation in general. What is it and why is it something that is so important to deal with? Radiation is a topic that people really don't know how to grasp. You don't feel it. You can't see it. It doesn't have a smell or a taste, but it's there. It's like something almost mystical, I would say. But there is a way to measure it, specifically ionizing radiation. It's ionizing because it creates a current. So it creates ionized particles that generate current. And that current is something measurable. And you could actually compute different doses of radiation based on that current. But really what it is, it's photons in most cases that strike, for example, a cell of the body and generate charged particles. In the case of the cell, it could be free radicals that are able to create mutations within the DNA and therefore hinder replication of that DNA and ultimately cause cells to undergo apoptosis or suicide, and also create higher susceptibility to cancer down the road. When we think of radiation, most Americans especially, they think of the nuclear power plants, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and of course, Chernobyl, maybe in the largest sense, they think of an atom bomb. In all of these cases, if radiation strikes, can you see it? Is there a wave of radiation you see coming at you, or is it something invisible? Radiation really is invisible. In the spectrum that we're talking about, it's invisible. You have to understand that the ionizing radiation that we're talking about is basically just another portion of the spectrum of light. So it's invisible light, so to speak, of a higher frequency that has penetrating power and wreaks havoc within a tissue that it enters. But it is a form of light, and you have a spectrum that is not harmful at all within the spectrum of light, a range that is not harmful. Is there a way to detect? Well, basically, radiation monitors, sensors, are what the modern world utilized to sense radiation. Back in the day of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and nobody had those capabilities. The radiation was just something that nobody even realized. Even the U.S. military had overexposed itself, not realizing until many years after the damage that was incurred in those soldiers, unnecessarily so. So we're very lucky to have radiation monitoring in place all around the world in a way that today these sensors are networked to the point where you can almost not smuggle a radiation-emitting device into the U.S. through its ports or airports without the government knowing about it. And so let's take a look at maybe the most famous example of radiation exposure that wasn't in wartime Chernobyl. 
I've had a chance to go to both Hiroshima and Chernobyl during the World Cup. I went and visited Chernobyl in Ukraine. It was an amazing experience, a sobering experience, and one that taught me a lot about something I didn't really know about, which is radiation. But while you're walking around the site of Chernobyl, <laughs> they know here in this town of Pripyat where most of the hotspots are, right? So you've got your Geiger counter, it's beeping, you're walking around, it's telling you what's there, and they'll say, hey, don't walk over there, here's a hotspot. Of course, you can't see it. You would never know. You would have no idea, right, what's around you. It's completely right. invisible. But if you were to stand on that spot for enough time, it, it would really, obviously, as you mentioned, wreak havoc. So I know that someone you learned from that was formative in your experience was one of the first responders and one of the only people in the outside Soviet Union world to come assist with the victims of Chernobyl. What did he learn and what did you learn from that experience of radiation directly into first responders and those that were helping to save people from that disaster? So really, uh, Chernobyl was kind of like the inspiration for me to, to start STEMRAD, even ahead of the Fukushima disaster, which served as the trigger for the founding of the company. I was deeply inspired by my professors, by my PhD mentors' experience. Dr. Yair Reisner was basically in the tail end of his postdoctoral studies back in 1986 when he got a call that there's been a disaster in the USSR. We're talking about the days of the USSR still. And if he could get on a plane together with two U.S. physicians, Robert Peter Gale and Dick Champlin, and try to treat those first responders that had gone in courageously and put out those fires within the reactor that exploded, if they could go out and treat them, that the Russians, they don't have the capability to treat them. And that specifically, my professor, Dr. Reisner, during his research, he found a way to transplant bone marrow that is not identical and still get a good outcome. And bone marrow was what the Russians needed to save these courageous firefighters because they were exposed to doses that really specifically wiped out their bone marrow. The bone marrow being the most sensitive organ in the body when it comes to radiation, the most sensitive tissue, that was wiped out to the point where their blood counts were really falling fast. That is the body's blood factory after all. And the only remedy the Russians were smart to realize that was bone marrow transplantation. So they went over, this is before there was even any kind of diplomatic relations between Israel and the USSR. So Dr. Reisner was obviously deterred from going there and frankly didn't even know how to go there. So they arranged for a plane for him that landed in Moscow. The first responders had been transferred to a hospital in Moscow. And that's where he, together with two other scientific advisors for STEMRAT today, Robert Peter Gale and Dick Chamblin, they uh, harvested bone marrow from siblings, from brothers and sisters. The bone marrow is only half identical. And they put that bone marrow through the process for which Professor Reisner, that's his claim to fame, that this process of being able to remove immune cells, specifically T cells, from within the bone marrow graft. And in doing so, enable tolerance so that the bone marrow graft given by the donor, in this case, brother or sister, to the recipient is accepted and not rejected within uh, the body of the recipient and also does not wreak havoc due to the presence of immune cells from the donor. So that was his specialty, uh, but the only problem was that he had done this process only rabbits very successfully. So he used certain molecule called penetaglutinin actually to capture the T cells from within the bone marrow graft. And they did that under conditions that were very difficult, he told me, with very old age centrifuges in conditions that were only semi-sterile and this is the first time ever doing this in the human setting. 
and they're doing this to save about 25 people that would die without it, basically walking dead people. And they went through an arduous process and they were able to, to harvest that bone marrow, remove about 99% of the immune cell, transplant it into the recipients. Unfortunately, though, this only prolonged their life by a few weeks. Ultimately, they did succumb to what we call graft versus host disease. So the remaining T cells within the bone marrow, those that were not successfully eliminated from the bone marrow graft, were able to grow and expand and ultimately attack the recipients from the inside. Basically, there wasn't graft rejection, but the graft rejected the recipients. And ultimately, they died, most of them. I think they saved only two people using that methodology. So the human setting is many times more challenging than the animal setting. You have to remember these rabbits and mice, they're very uniform in in their genetics. Everything is almost binary in, in the way they respond. Either you get no response or a full response. In humans, a lot more gray area. And yeah, that, so that was a tragic outcome for that courageous effort, but left me with a thirst to try and solve the problem. And you mentioned something there very interesting. One major thing I learned in Chernobyl is there were a handful of people who responded early, were highly exposed to radiation, but did not succumb to it. And as far as I knew, no one really knows why that is. It's just that some people tend to be able to handle it better. And that's fascinating to me. That's sort of hard to understand, right? Because as the story you're describing, you have these invaders come into your body. They basically get into your bone marrow. They change, as you mentioned, what's going on in there. And then that's what's going to wind up killing the patient. You're mentioning your research, which we're about to talk about. But can you speak for a second on how some people handle radiation better? Yeah, it's a very interesting topic that you're touching upon. Uh, We really don't have a very good answer. What we know is that there is a whole distribution in those response. So the responsiveness of the tissue of the person to a certain level of dose varies in a very big way to the point that you're right. We do have what we call an an LD50 threshold, a dose at which 50% of the population would perish. But that's just kind of like a mean or an average, that dose. So you have those being five fevers, for example. So you would have 50% dying and 50% not dying at all. Why you would be subscribed to one group rather than the other, we can't tell. But, But more than that, we have people that would die from doses as low as one gray or one sievert, if you use those units. And then you have people that wouldn't die from eight fevers. And these people are from the same populace without any very differing background between the two. So it's really extreme that one could take potentially eightfold more radiation than the other and still survive, whereas the other succumbs. And why this exists, nobody has a very good answer. There is a gender difference. Women are generally more susceptible to radiation than men. There is an age difference. Generally, younger people, especially children, are more susceptible than older people. There is a mass issue. Generally, if you have more body fat, then you're more protected. That's for sure the case. If you compare uh, an obese person to a very thin person, the obese person would be really more resistant in a significant way. People must realize that mass blocks radiation and does so in a good way. So Radiation is not something you cannot block. You can definitely block it. It's just a matter of how much mass you need to block it. So I just touched upon uh, three or four factors creating this variability within the populace, but it can add up uh, to the extreme where you're going to get people that are way more sensitive than the others. 
And that's such a good 30,000 foot view of testing anything medically, including something like COVID. And you nailed it. Testing on animals is so much different than humans because each human is drastically different from another. And, and at times we don't even know why their defenses may hold up better, but it does make it a challenge, which is what makes your research, I think, so fascinating. So you take these stories we've just talked about, you begin to develop a strong interest in them. You do your own studies on mice, but you do something very unique, unexpected. Even when you read about it today, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Tell us what it was that you discovered. So basically, I had a strong uh, desire to make sure that no first responder doing the courageous act that had been done in Chernobyl would wind up with a lack of bone marrow following exposure. And my initial idea was to harvest bone marrow from each first responder that would potentially go into a nuclear disaster worldwide and store that bone marrow in a place that should he need it or she need it, it could be retransfused into their bodies. Bone marrow is very amazing in the sense that a transplantation is something that is able to work. And in the case of transplantation, we don't transplant large amounts of bone marrow. We're talking about small amounts of bone marrow that are transplanted. So today, a leukemia patient that receives a radiation therapy and his or her leukemia cells are wiped out, should you send that person home without any kind of transplantation, then that person would perish within a week or so. so. He or she would die from the treatment, not from the cancer. So what we do today is we basically harvest bone marrow from an identical donor that is identified through the bone marrow registry. And that donor doesn't give all of his or her bone marrow, doesn't give half, just gives a small, a tiny percentage of the bone marrow, up to 5% of the donor's bone marrow is given away. And that donor has lunch and goes home, doesn't suffer the consequences of giving just 5% of his or her bone marrow. Whereas the recipient, that 5% or even lower, is able to replenish all of the bone marrow and all the blood forming system to the point where that person lives for many years after due to that gift of life. So I thought quite naively, why not harvest bone marrow from all of these courageous responders and freeze it and whenever they need it, retransplant it. And then you wouldn't have the problem of locating an identical donor because each potential victim would already have his own bone marrow stored. I started looking at doing that, but that turned out to be a potential logistical nightmare to harvest bone marrow from so many potential individuals around the world. We really don't know who is going to be going in where at what given point in time to save the day. When the numbers add up, it gets to millions of people that you would have to harvest bone marrow from. And then you look at the side effects of harvesting bone marrow, that 1 to 10,000, you have severe complications. So you're looking at a situation where for sure you're going to have, in the process of trying to save these people, already severe complications. So then I just went back to research and uh, continued working on mice with my research, which was basically finding ways to enable engraftment of bone marrow that is not identical, basically to induce tolerance towards mismatched bone marrow grafts. And then I stumbled upon an amazing observation that Whenever I was irradiating the mice, there were sometimes mice that would survive even without bone marrow transplantation. Maybe one to 10 mice or so, they would just go on and live without any transplant. And I tried to figure out what was going on. And then I learned that in the process of irradiating, sometimes I leave a segment of a mouse outside of the radiation field. And that segment could be as minimal as just the tail of the mouse. So it was enough for me to leave the tail of the mouse outside of the radiation field 
To have that mouse recover from radiation injury without introducing new bone marrow into that mouse. And ultimately, what I figured out and what was basically also established in the literature, that bone marrow within the vertebrae in the tail of the mouse is of a quantity that is in excess of what is necessary to survive. And that quantity is 2.5%. So you need as little as 2.5% of your bodily bone marrow, assuming it's identical and it's not rejected and no complications, to regrow your bone marrow and return to normal blood counts in as little as one month. So that was basically my understanding that if you can save a person by introducing so little identical bone marrow into his or her body, why not protect that same amount of bone marrow within the body of the first responder while he or she is responding to an event. And that is something that I really latched on because I realized that it solved a big, big problem. The problem of being able to shield from radiation. How do you shield from radiation in a way that you don't inhibit the performance of the first responder? Sure, you can put the first responder in a nuclear bunker, but that won't do so well for his job definition. And in the past, people have tried to invent suits that protect all the body, but these suits do very little to block the radiation. Even a 100-pound suit, a 200-pound suit, would do nothing to block gamma radiation because that mass would be spread out throughout your whole body. But given this finding that it's enough to protect the bone marrow to get recovery of the individual, we can focus shielding just on where bone marrow is. And then I studied the distribution of bone marrow within the human body to find, amazingly, that 50% of the body's bone marrow resides within the hip region of the individual. And that lends itself to the personal protective equipment that we later developed. Because now you don't have to put this mass all over the body of the individual. You can focus a significant amount of shielding on a specific area of the body. So our product called 360 Gamma product what it does, it puts basically about 15 kilograms or about 30 pounds of mass around a minimal area of the body, as small as 11% of the body's surface area. And in doing so, you basically create protection that's on par with a suit that would weigh half a ton. So these half-ton suits were never brought to market because it would never work. But this solution is something that I felt was reasonable and could be very meaningful for protection of first responders. What you said there is mind-boggling on so many levels. You go back to the Chernobyl story, and there was true, just incredible heroic acts that occurred that you learned about there from people that lived in Ukraine, that were living under the USSR, that were not fans at all of the Soviet Union, that knew that in their community, they had people that were in trouble, that knew they were going to die, that went in right underneath the reactor, right into the reactor, long exposures to save other people's lives, truly moving stuff. Right. They did so wearing rudimentary hazmat suit or what people think of when they think of people going into a nuclear disaster. But what you're describing is basically like a back brace, or if you like to lift weights, something you would use when you're squatting. It's very minimal. It's wearable. You can go in and this discovery, you're saying that you can protect the main part of your bone marrow, which is in your pelvic region, as you mentioned. And just by protecting that from radiation, your body then is able to fend off the rest of the radiation you receive in the rest of your body. That's essentially what's happening, right? In effect, the result is exactly what you described. At the biological level, what happens is that the bone marrow that is rescued by this shielding within the hip region is able to proliferate, to multiply in the hours and days and weeks following the exposure 
And then when it reaches a certain level, then the cells, the bone marrow stem cells, if you will, they're able to enter the bloodstream. They leave the bone cavity and they migrate into the bloodstream. And then they know how to home directly towards bones that were wiped out by the radiation. And then they settle within these empty bones. If you take the bone, you take a cross section, you can see after the radiation, it's empty. And these small cells know how to repopulate these empty areas and they proliferate like mad. So on average, each stem cell is giving you 10,000 daughter cells. And that process goes on until the bones are full of red, prosperous bone marrow within as little as one month. That's incredible. Quite the discovery. And a question comes to mind. In the Chernobyl disaster, as in space, which we're about to talk about, you had very limited times you could have a worker go in. Now, the Russians were incredibly rudimentary. They were essentially making things up. There's a road in Prepyat that they knew was heavily radiated, and they would say, drive 110 miles an hour, get out of your car, spend exactly four minutes cleaning something up, get back in, get out, right? That was obviously a bad idea. But there is a reality that there's only so much time a first responder should be spending in an environment like this. Does the Gamma 360 belt, is this able to allow first responders to spend more time saving people without changing a shift? Or is it a scenario where they spend the same amount of time, they just have protection? Now we know that 15 minutes will be safe, so to speak. So that's a question that we get from our customers all the time. So they want to know how much longer they can stay in. And what I'd like to answer is that even in Chernobyl, they were very cognizant of the radiation. It's not sometimes the first responders are portrayed as, as people that didn't know anything about the radiation, just went in blindly. No, they knew very well. And actually, they went in in shifts of 12 minutes in Chernobyl. And those 12 minutes, had everything been like a uniform spread of the radiation, it would have been okay. But what happened was they went in in groups of, let's say, 10 people with only the commander observing his radiation monitor. And the other nine spread out on the roof of the reactor. So the problem is that the radiation deposits or the radioactive material, the fallout, was not uniformly present on the roof of the reactor. You had piles of debris, highly radioactive. But then you had areas that were not so radioactive because the radiation dose, the dose rate, declines exponentially with distance, right? So if you increase your distance twofold from the pile of rubble, then the radiation decreases fourfold. So what you see is a crazy distribution of thickness within this group of 10. You would have seven that are unscathed, really, and then three that were standing near the rubble, even for a few seconds, and they received that high dose of radiation. So it's really a matter of uniform or non-uniform exposure. So with these first responders, they can never know if it's going to be uniform or non-uniform. Therefore, they must have protection. My pitch to customers is go in as you plan to go in under the assumption of uniform radiation, but should it not be uniform, you're protected. To what extent you're protected? Theoretically, you could stay twice as long as what you would have without the protection, but I would never advocate for the first responders to go in longer than what they had planned. I just want them to go in knowing that even if their plan was not accurate, given the circumstances, they're able to survive. Yeah, and that's definitely a comfort. Like you mentioned in Chernobyl, all those first responders, there's a monument to the firefighters nearby who all perished, who went in knowing exactly what they were doing. They all knew exactly what they were doing. Right, knowing it was a death sentence. I hear a lot of people belittling how much they knew, especially in America. The USSR was not the perfect place, but you had people that were heroes there, and these people were heroes. 
Yeah, true heroes. And again, people that politically oftentimes did not align at all with what was being done had to go in, could have attempted to run away, fight, take whatever punishment, but they didn't. They responded immediately, knowing that death was certainly the sentence and attempt to rescue others. Really amazing stuff. And your innovation obviously is helping that. And now we're going to talk about space and space colonization. So astronauts, of course, are facing radiation, right? Once we leave the Earth's atmosphere and the magnetic field, the radiation gets to be serious. It gets to be much more serious the closer we get to the sun as we have cosmic galactic radiation that's bad. That's really bad stuff, right? Solar flares, things like that. So you had to develop something that was a little bit different, right? You couldn't have used the personal protection device in the same way. Instead, you developed a device that had to be a little heavier, a little bulkier, but still does the same thing. What were some of the challenges for developing protection in space? So that was a tremendous shift in the company's overall outlook to the market from dealing with the worst case scenario of a nuclear disaster Suddenly, we're also dealing with the best case scenario of sending people to Mars. And that's what NASA wants to do today. So being involved in both worlds you know, really creates a great sense of fulfillment. But, but to your question, the technical challenges were quite significant, but surprisingly, not something that we could not overcome. And, and I thought we could from day one. So we collaborated with Lockheed Martin, who is building the spacecraft to take people back to the moon and on to Mars. And lucky for me, I have good physicists working for me. And it was very apparent to us that the radiation threat in space is quite different than the radiation threat uh, here on Earth. You're concerned less about gamma radiation, more about radiation emanating from the sun and from the galaxy. And this radiation, and this is something I didn't know actually going in, is not photons. You're talking about actual particles, ions, mostly hydrogen plus, so H plus particles that are huge compared to a photon. So you're talking about something that's millions of times larger than a photon, huge particles, and coming at energies much higher than that of a photon in gamma radiation. So it sounds very scary, and I thought going in, wow, but very quick, I was comforted to know that even though they're so energetic, because they're so big, you're able to block them. You're able to shield against them so they don't seep in easily through the atoms in the shielding material like photons do. So photons are able to seep through the atoms of the lead in the shielding. Here, they're so big, it's pretty easy to trap them. Now, the best material for trapping photons here on Earth is lead, specifically virgin lead, that is pure lead. That's what we use in a 360 gamma solution. But in space, should you use lead, you're going to create what we call secondary radiation. So the particles are going to strike the lead, then create a gamma wave or an alpha wave or a beta wave, which is going to be dangerous in itself. So better to use what we call low Z materials, so atoms with a smaller number of protons within them. And the atom with the smallest number of protons is obviously hydrogen. So use hydrogen to block hydrogen. That's basically what we're looking at today. So we basically used almost, I would say, off-the-shelf polymers such as polyethylene. You could even use water, by the way. Any material that is rich in hydrogen is able to effectively block hydrogen atoms or ions coming from the sun with creating minimal secondary radiation. So that was one challenge. The material challenge was easily overcome. And then we had the whole issue of what are you going to protect? Are you going to protect the same organ that you're protecting here on Earth? Or are you going to look at the picture a bit differently here? So 
Given the nature of the radiation space, we were actually driven in the direction of looking at it a bit differently because you do have the threat of a high dose coming from the sun, just like a high dose coming from a Chernobyl reactor that creates what we call acute radiation syndrome, which is wiping out the bone marrow and death within a month or two. But in parallel, you also have radiation coming from the galaxy, what we call galactic cosmic rays, and they're coming in regardless of any sun activity. And it's a constant bombardment of ions, sometimes bigger than hydrogen, as big as lead, by the way, coming in from supernovae in the galaxy. But they're coming in at a very low dose rate. But if you're looking at a long-duration mission, not the mission of a week to the moon like the Apollo astronaut, but a mission to Mars that's a three-year round trip, then you'd better try and mitigate as much of that low-level dose as well. So here we realized we'd be better off having a solution that protects against both. So having something that is able to minimize the chance of acute radiation syndrome vis-a-vis Chernobyl, but also help as much as you can in the dose that's incoming on a daily basis over the duration of three years. So working with Lockheed Martin and given the luxury of microgravity, we decided to expand upon the 360 Gamma solution. And going from a hip belt, we went all the way up to a vest, a vest that protects from under the hip and all the way to the chin of the astronaut. And in doing so, protecting the bone marrow, but also vital organs such as the lungs, such as the stomach and the gastrointestinal system, and in the woman, also the very sensitive breast tissue and ovaries. And in doing so, you're shielding the bone marrow and preventing that horrible death like in Chernobyl, but also contributing to the reduction of the likelihood of cancer within those organs in a very significant way. So what we have is instead of a heavy metal like lead, we have polyethylene. Instead of just the belt, we have a whole vest. And what does this vest weigh? And and are the astronauts wearing this every day, only when they go out for a spacewalk? What does that look like? Yes, that's something that is still evolving as far as how they're going to use it. But the weight is 27 kilograms for a large male, maybe 22 kilograms for a smaller frame female. So ballpark 50 to 60 pounds of mass. But bear in mind that it's just mass. There is no weight in space. And we're using that to our benefit. It's never too heavy. So whenever I wear this vest here on Earth, it's pretty bad. But in the ISS, we have one vest on the station right now, circling Earth. There, it's meaningless. But what is not meaningless is the launch mass. So you want it to be light for the purpose of not burdening the launch with the additional mass that you could avoid. So having it weigh not as much is a big boon for whoever is launching this mass, in this case, the NASA, where... It costs a crazy amount of money to launch mass to the lunar environment outside of Earth's gravity well. It's currently $50,000 per pound. So any pound you can take off the weight of the garment is really appreciated, and we've done that. So we've capitalized on the body self-shielding. So we realized that you want to protect all these organs, but some of the organs are more protected naturally than others, meaning that you have organs that are more concealed by the body's tissue than others. On one extreme, you have the woman's breast tissue, which is completely exposed to the outside environment. So you need to have a lot of artificial shielding. So that's where the vest is really thick. But then you have areas that are naturally concealed, like parts of the gastrointestinal tract, like parts of the bone marrow, specifically the anterior bone marrow is quite well shielded. So we created a variable thickness that accommodates the natural shielding properties of the body. And in doing so, we reduced the potential mass of about 50 kilograms to just 27 kilograms. 
And that's part of our patents. That was also employed in the 360 Gamma solution, that had we not utilized this understanding, then it would have been almost twice as heavier and really a no-go for first responders. That's really interesting stuff. Weight, obviously, anyone who's a pilot understands the importance of weight, even here, just flying, right? Sub the Earth's atmosphere, low orbit, and then, of course, going to space even more so, $50,000 per pound. You just shaved off 25 pounds. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're saving a couple million dollars there. So looking at how to use it, I want to go back to that. You mentioned we're not totally sure how to use this yet. So NASA, SpaceX, anyone working on space exploration has to deal with what you just mentioned, shielding the spacecraft from radiation, right? and then also shielding those who are living, uh, the astronauts, any dwelling you build, any structure you have, they must be shielded. So do we have any suggested ideas of how we would use these vests once we're up in space? I land on Mars. Yeah. What is my daily life potentially looking like when it comes to radiation? Right. Initially, I was thinking that this would be worn only during solar particle events, what we call SPE. In layman term, maybe solar flare is more acceptable. These events occur on average a couple of times a year, and usually they're benign. But sometimes they're quite awful on the magnitude of going into a Chernobyl reactor. And the problem with these eruptions of the sun is that they're really not too foreseeable. There is a correlation with the number of dark spots that you count on the sun, but sometimes it could be like very few dark spots, but still you have a solar particle event. And the astronauts, they have just between 30 minutes and one hour warning before it hits them. That is a small amount of time, but we feel it's enough time for the astronauts to be able to wear their vest should they be on hand. And then they have to wear it for the duration of the solar particle event, which could be a day, which is pretty long in itself, but it could be up to two weeks. And that's where the product comfort comes into play, the ergonomics of the product. And that's exactly what's being tested on ISS right now is, is this something that you can wear for more than a day, for more than a week, maybe even? And that's something that's being tested. We invested a lot of effort in making it comfortable and flexible. It's comprised of 15,000 parts that each part moves independently of the other so that you create a fluid-like motion. It's a really nice, very nice solution that we hope to also display at the CAD Museum very shortly. But to answer your question, yes, whenever there's a solar particle event, it will be worn. But from talking with astronauts more and more, I realize that if they find it comfortable, they're going to wear it whenever they go to bed, even if there's not a solar particle event, just to avoid the background radiation that I mentioned from the supernovae as much as they can. No, they won't wear it for the whole mission because at the end of the day, it is quite a bulky garment. But they're going to wear it whenever it's critical vis-a-vis solar particle events or when they're sleeping. That's the vision that I currently have. On the way to Mars, you're looking at a three-year mission. You can have solar particle events on the way there, when you're there, and on the way back. You're going to have at least a handful of solar particle events. It's going to be very important to have the vest on hand to prevent, in an extreme case, fatalities during the mission. In a more likely case, to reduce the likelihood probability of cancer in their bodies years after their mission is done. And it begs the question, why not shield the structure they're in or the spacecraft they're in from these types of radiation events? Is it a weight issue? Why not create a coating on the craft or the dwelling? So that was really the direction of many, many scientists over the years. I would say that there were a few that tried to do what we're doing. Those people that tried that didn't have our methodology of selective shielding. But to answer your question, why not shield the whole craft? Well, we calculated that to get the same effect on the Orion capsule, which is NASA's flagship to the moon and beyond, built by Lockheed Martin, 
So you can either take four vests in aggregate, weigh about 200 pounds, or you can add 14 tons to the shielding of the vehicle. So <laughs> that's basically the number we're looking at. So the comparison is extreme. You just would have to double the weight of the vehicle. Going back to the calculus of how much a pound or a kilogram costs to deep space, about $50,000 for a pound, the number becomes catastrophic for any organization that's trying to go outside of Earth's gravity well. So it's really not possible at all, at least if you're doing it on Earth. If you're doing it on the moon, you, know, you can send an unshielded aircraft and possibly shield it on the moon, and then the gravity well is not so bad and then go on to Mars. But you're talking about a very difficult situation compared to having these vests on hand. Quite the elegant solution. As you just mentioned, there's potentially no exploration of Mars at all unless you have a way to do it more efficiently. And that's exactly what this solution is providing. You can see this vest for yourself if you Google AstroRad. It'll pop right up. You can see images of it, people actually wearing it. Get a look for it, of course, as you mentioned. You guys are in like kind of the final tweaking phase to see what's it going to look like, how might you reshape it. But it's quite remarkable. Obviously, space colonization is going to be something that amazingly, it still feels amazing to me, right, in our lifetimes right. is pushing forward rather aggressively. To hear your story today, Dr. Milstein, going through Chernobyl, radiation, bone marrow, space, it all seems so big, but remarkably, you're answering a lot of questions in ways that are quite compelling using evidence to back up what you found. Just absolutely fascinating stuff. It's been great to have conversations with you. We at the Cade look forward to potentially seeing some of your stuff here on exhibit at the museum. Obviously, we look forward to keeping in touch with you. Dr. Milstein, CEO, co-founder of STEMRAD. Again, you can find his stuff online. Definitely check it out. Thanks for being with us today. Quite the insightful episode. No, thank you, James. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I hope the information is going to help other innovators and entrepreneurs in making the mission even safer. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. This podcast episode's host was James DeVirgilio. And Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.